0: Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Stuslo. This is our weekly roundup where we invite a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape. And on our outstanding panel today, returning to the roundup from her perch atop the Big Apple... Susan del Percio. Susan is a highly sought after crisis communications consultant, political strategist, writer, and MSNBC political analyst. Good morning, Susan. How have your travels been?
1: Been fantastic. Great to be with you this morning.
0: Also, returning to the Roundup, senior advisor at the California Latino Economic Institute, my fellow co-founder and advisor to the Lincoln Project. He also lectures on race, class, and partisanship at USC. Our good friend, Mike Madrid, how is the second half century of life going so far?
2: Thanks for the reminder. Thanks for putting it in those terms, Ron. So far, so good. It's been a couple days and I'm still here with you. So good to be with you guys.
0: Happy, happy birthday, my ride or die.
1: Happy birthday. I've been in there for about two years now. It's fine. Okay, I'll make it. Don't worry. Don't be scared. Don't be scared.
0: You wear it very well. On this week's Roundup, first, we will discuss the White House's move to show their concern over high inflation and the EU's ban on Russian oil imports and how it could push prices even higher. Then we'll look at the relationship between Hollywood and the Defense Department with this summer's blockbuster film, Top Gun. And then finally, we'll flip over to Politicology Plus, where we'll discuss the potential Republicans who could run for president in 2024. Again, that will be in Politicology Plus, which is our private ad-free version of the podcast loaded with exclusive strategy and analysis you won't get anywhere else. If you're listening to us in the Apple Podcasts app, you can navigate to The Politicology Show and tap the button that says Try Free. Or you can sign up at politicology.com slash plus. We'll dig in right after this. On Tuesday, The Washington Post reported that the White House was launching a new push to show that the administration understands Americans' concerns about inflation and that the government is taking steps to tamp down on inflation. According to the Post's reporting, this move came after weeks of Biden complaining to his aides that they weren't doing enough publicly. Uh, Two sources told the Post that Biden was frustrated that the administration hasn't done enough to confront inflation directly. Uh, Tuesday also marked record high fuel prices with the average price of a gallon of gas hitting four sixty-two. That is a 52% increase over last year, and this came after the European Union announced a ban on 90% of oil imports from Russia by the end of the year in an effort to sanction the Putin regime over their invasion of Ukraine. Now, last week, the AP reported on a poll they conducted with NORC at the University of Chicago they've been asking Americans if the bigger priority should be sanctioning Russia as effectively as possible or limiting the damage in the U.S. economy. And In March, 55% of those respondents said sanctioning Russia should be the priority, and 42% said it should be to limit the damage to the U.S. economy. Now, in May, they had nearly flipped with only 45% saying Russia should be the priority and 51% saying the economy. So, Mike... Numbers for breakfast. When we read polls, we look for movement. I think our listeners are now well trained to understand that. So, how do you interpret the trajectory in attitudes here uh, about priorities?
2: Well, the, the worry here is always going to be um, sustainability or support for the West in ukraine and there's no doubt in my mind at all that the domestic situation uh, for biden uh, and the democrats is extraordinarily volatile mainly for a couple of reasons and you're seeing polling uh, on all of these uh, issues i'll mention um showing that same movement right whether it's the uh aid wade uh news that we got out that roe is likely to be gone in the next couple of weeks whether it is the mass shootings that continue to um, um, dominate the news cycle and kind of crush the soul of Americans over the course of every other day, um, oh, and of course the the, the international situation uh, in in Ukraine, along with uh, these extraordinarily forty-year-high uh, inflationary pressures, so it's this is this is this is like walking through a field of landmines here. It's very very uh, trepidatious uh, politically speaking. Um, and and that's not good news for any incumbency. It's just it's just not right now. Having said that, when I do look at the issues matrix and I start to see that you are, um, that there's clearly intensity on the row aid issue. There's clearly intensity on the uh, demand to do something for gun uh, violence. Um and and I, I also don't believe that we've reached the end of this gun violence epidemic, too. I think it's going to continue for the next few months, unfortunately. Um, and I think that we also have not seen the zenith of anger and rage as it relates to the elimination of Roe, which I expect we'll probably see in midsummer's time frame. Uh, those issues benefit the Democrats. They benefit the Democrats for two reasons. The first, is that you're going to see higher turnout amongst 18 to 25-year-olds who are not citing inflation as a number one concern. They're not running households. They're obviously impacted more because they've got less income, but they are not the ones that are, are registering these types of concerns. Issues of gun control, cultural issues that tend to benefit the Democrats drive this voter segment, and we have never seen a consistent uh, midterm to midterm turnout of this age group, like we may see, uh, heading into November. So th- those two issues benefit there. The Democrats where they also benefit the Democrats is with this college educated Republican women demographic, which is absolutely pivotal in determining the power and direction power of Congress and the determine and determining the direction of the country. Um, uh, also very keenly motivated by these two issues. However, however, They are also the most concerned because they're the ones watching the pocketbook and the purse strings for the household and paying for energy in the minivan for gas prices and doing the grocery shopping and running the household and recognizing just how serious and impactful inflationary pressures are for real people. The question really, I think, is going to come down to this demographic and this group. And that fluidity remains extraordinarily um, significant. This movement, as you correctly pointed out, again, which is what we're looking for, um, is 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 there. Um, my strong sense is both of these are going to have uh, the the both the cultural issues that we're we're struggling with as a country, and these economic issues which have reached a forty year high, are both going to be very significant drivers. Heading into the November elections, inflation is not going to get better in the next five six months. It's just not. Neither is the cultural situation. It's probably going to get worse. Um, that tells me that again, whoever whoever is able to capture the importance of either these cultural issues that that speak to women very specifically um, and tangentially, I guess you could argue with with guns, mass you know shootings and or these inflationary pressures and losing confidence in the economy, that's where where the direction of the country and the control of Congress is going to lie. It's with women losing sleep at night and about which issues are going to be dominating. Um, The the quote-unquote good news for Democrats is these were not two issues that were percolating 60, 90 days ago the way that they are now. The question is, will they be in four or five months? My strong suspicion is they probably will be. But is that going to be enough when inflationary pressures probably are not going to ease in a significant way going into November? So in this case, in this instance, we're not necessarily – I'm not necessarily looking uh, uh, or reading the tea leaves for a trajectory of where they're heading. I'm simply looking at this extraordinary volatility and saying, man, this is a coin toss heading into the next four or five months and um if democrats are able to rally and energize their base on these key issues uh, where the issues matrix is heading i think that could be very good news it, in at least mitigating the damage of what could possibly be done with an extraordinarily significant red wave in november uh, and or can can republicans keep their own republican suburban women base more focused on saying the cost of bread, the cost of gas, the cost of groceries is much more important to you than the right to choose and these um, gun mass shootings that are happening and we're going to we're going to find out we just don't know yet. So
0: so to sum up really um yeah, and and to put this mm, clinically from a practitioner's perspective the energy as a result of both of these terrifying things right? uh is is positive for democrats. It's a gift in a way. Uh, and the question is now who can win that very crucial voter segment, right? So the battleground has now shifted, or maybe hasn't shifted, but is now sort of really uh concentrated among the suburbs and in particular suburban women. So if it's so much more volatile now, right? And the to the victor will go whoever can frame these things the best, um, Susan, who it, the question is like democrats have had an uphill battle we've we've been talking about this uh for a while going into the midterms and now it looks like they they now have a shot right at at, at least mitigating the damage or but this comes down to framing messaging are they going to be able to do it and who right because we've got these we've got these twin sets of issues right who 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 outperforms on the on the messaging front
1: well I think the Republicans will end up out messaging because they will stay pretty disciplined on the economy, most likely. They now have, as a result of the mass shootings, um, they will go back into the culture war of guns. They will now re- re- get their people out on the gun issue more so than the choice issue because it's likely that the choice issue will be more settled and they'll be having a victory. But the one demographic we haven't talked about, which is really hurting Democrats right now, is the lack of voter intensity when it comes to the African-American community. Black voters are very disappointed in the Democrats, this administration, for not getting things done. And we see it in poll after poll. There is not the intensity to show up. Not that they're going to turn to Republicans. Make no mistake about it. I'm talking about who's showing up. So for the Democrats, they have to hope that they see a voter intensity in younger voters, which is is a big gamble. And they have to factor in that African American voters are not very excited about them whatsoever. It's actually the biggest dip that we see in in, in voter intensity in any of the geographic things that we uh, groups that we look at. The messaging is really difficult for this White House because this White House is always two or three months behind the issue. We were seeing inflation in the headlines for over two months before we saw President Biden address and have an issue with the economy and have an, an issue, but have a press conference on the economy. Again, baby formula. We now hear today the president didn't know about it until two months after the fact. His administration knew, but he didn't know. The fact that this administration always looks like it's catching up is very bad messaging. The president's upset about the lack of appearances on TV and who's giving the message. Well, I have an issue with the president being the one who gives the message right now. Again, I supported the president. I I I would like to see our country succeed. But when he's having a conversation in a press conference set or in a press setting and he's reading the information off of index cards, it, it just looks bad. It doesn't look like it's action, especially when we come after a president who flat out lied, made things up and, but was always positive. All we see is someone who's trying to catch up right now. So the messaging is very difficult for Democrats. Even on things like the mass shooting, they have to start talking about saving the, the next life. Yes, what happened was tragic. Every mass shooting, every loss of life is tragic. It's not about preventing the next mass shooting. It's about saving the next life where the pressure should come on. Roe v. Wade should it be overturned or, or deemed basically back to the state's. It will become a motivating force, there's no question, among a certain group of people, but Mike's absolutely right when they have to say, what am I voting for? Making ends meet on my kitchen table or trying to change something that has already been changed again? So it's going to be a difficult motivating factor. I think the Democrats need to, to find a way of showing that they get what's wrong with the economy right now, that they care about it because they tend to talk at us, not with us. And I think the more the Republicans can focus in on a message of an, of um, having to turn around the economy and co- using culture wars such as um, gun issues, there, it may not be the biggest red, red wave, but it's still going to it may not be a tsunami, but it's going to be a big crashing wave.
0: I want to dig into the 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 framing around in, inflation a little bit um, because of that that kitchen table, uh, you know, the kitchen table issue, right? So on Wednesday, something caught my eye. On Wednesday, the Washington Examiner ran an editorial with the headline, "The CBO Confirms Biden Inflation is Real," and that was the first time I'd seen the the word Biden Inflation, a single word, not a catchphrase, a single word. And it's branded and hung around the president's neck and all the Democrats' necks. And I thought that was extremely effective. I don't know. I don't know if the Washington Examiner came up with that or if that's been floating around GOP talking points memos for a while. But I thought it was. I thought it was really, really good uh, framing for them. And in the column, they assert that the CBO uh, quote squarely blames Biden's 2021 COVID stimulus bill. For high inflation, um, although that report cites both the late 2020 stimulus package and the 2021 stimulus package as uh, possible causes for inflation, um, and whether you choose the 2020 spending or the 2021 2021 spending or a combination of both, um, the the consensus is the sheer tsunami of money uh, printed and injected into the system is 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 a is a major cause of inflation, and Republicans credibly or not. Uh, have staked out, you know, pretty strong ground to fight from on that front. That, that is, uh, the, the 2020 spending was necessary and emergency in the middle of the pandemic, and that 1.9 trillion dollars in Biden's 2021 package was a vast overspend. Um, but regardless, in total, we've spent five trillion dollars so far in uh, "quote unquote" COVID relief. So I wonder if that's like if that's the ground. How effective is it going to be for Republicans to pin? the blame for inflation on Biden and the Democrats. Um, And, and is there any, you know, we'll get into this in a second, but I want to quote from the op-ed that Biden wrote in the Washington, uh, in the wall street journal uh, addressing this. Um, But it just doesn't seem to me like they have a, um, a, a good defense there. Do you, do you see, do you see a good defense on that front for Democrats at all?
2: I don't. Uh, and, and look i've been saying this for for months in, inflation is particularly pernicious uh, and for, for those of us over a half century old who who remember the last major inflationary cycle and how it can really dominate political discourse i mean it, it it's it 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 really saps the energy and the confidence out of government in a way that very few issues do it's it's it, And people literally see it every day, whether they're paying it at the pump or buying groceries. It's very, very significant, and it's extremely corrosive. It's also extremely difficult for a president to do anything about it, right? The, the, the tools that we have really rely with the Federal Reserve, and, and those are imperfect. Um especially when you start talking about supply chain issues and stuff, that's your know, Russia invading Ukraine. Like these are not things that that are necessarily in control of 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 the President or of Congress. But voters don't care. And that's, that's what you have to, matter. they they don't care. Okay. They don't, if you're trying to explain your way out, why this is Biden's problem, not Biden's problem, you're losing. So just, just take a deep breath while you hear yourself verbalizing those words and recognize you've got to fight uh, politically, at least on a different front because you're losing this war. Okay. Yeah.
0: But, but I think, hold on to hit pause for a second. And then I want you to continue this thought, but I are, I'm hearing listeners in my ear right now saying, but if only they understood, if only they understood X and Y and Z and B and right, it doesn't doesn't matter. matter. Just, I, I get, I get that you're frustrated and you're probably really very smart and you're probably right. And it doesn't matter. So take a deep breath,
2: right? Yeah, and, that, and that's it. it, it really, th- those causes don't matter. You, they hired you to fix the problems, not to explain the problems, right? They, they don't want. They don't right. want somebody in government saying, "Well, look, I, I can't control this. This isn't my fault, right? It doesn't. It doesn't matter. It doesn't <laughs> matter what the problem is. Your job is to fix it, and I don't. Uh, your job is to understand it and fix it, not mine. My mind is to go to work, and I can't afford to get to work because gas yeah. is so hot. So, so that that is it's a, it's a, it's a very real dilemma, and like I said, th- this is not a quick fix. These things don't solve themselves very quickly. Not just monetarily, not just bringing inflation down, but you also have to rebuild that confidence that you have been losing. And that's why I think when when Susan says, you know, hearing him reading from an index card, it just it does not inspire confidence. It just it just doesn't. It's not like okay, they've got a a a um, handle on the situation. And that's really what is reflected in all of this polling is there's just not, there's this underlying um, lack of confidence that 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 Joe Biden and his team are on top of all of these problems. Real or not, again, I'm not in the business of reality. I'm in the business of perception and the way people feel about things. And that is the way that they feel. That's just quantifiable. Like I said, I, I do believe it is fixable. I do believe it is surmountable. But I do believe that it's extraordinarily difficult. Um, you know, a long time ago, I kind of, uh, you know, said got rid of the idea that nothing is, you know, anything is possible in this business. But but there's also some pretty predictable trajectories of where we're heading, and the fundamentals at this point uh, do not look good. Um, that doesn't necessarily mean, uh, again, as Susan said, it's going to be a tsunami, but it, it there's there everything te- seems to be breaking the Republicans' way, with the exception, uh, like I said, of some of these key cultural issues on on two key demographics, which are going to be extraordinarily important. The suburban college, you know educated woman, which I, I talk about probably too much, but that's the constituency that really determines where the country's heading and the turnout of 18 to 25 year olds which whenever you're banking on the youth vote showing up you know it's it's a you know three point shot from the half court line i mean it could go <laughs> you hope it will but yep. but you know it's not yep
1: sorry sorry mike all i'm gonna say is when you're relying on that group you're totally fucked. <laughs> <Yeah>. excuse <laughs> my language but that's where you are <laughs> uh-huh. sure enough. Yeah. Uh, yeah and so and that yeah. and that
2: is what you know where democrats uh, uh find themselves at at least at this point in time and again i'm gonna put that uh, a horrible qualifier that i hate myself which is there's a lot of a lot of time to go in all of this Remember, the the, the invasion in Ukraine is not even 100 days old yet, and we still have 150 days before the election or so. So a lot is going to change. And again, that's why you're looking at volatility. You're looking at movement, looking for bases of support. And there's enough data on both sides to say this could go in either direction at this point. But the fundamental trajectory is still not good for the Democrats at this point in time. I think history as well as this inflationary, um, um, corrosive effect that mm-hmm. it's having on the confidence and direction of the voters is is it's not shaking, and I don't think you shake that in the next five months.
0: Okay, so Susan, how <laughs> I, wa- I I know I, I know you want so to take it away. From- <laughs> I know, good. Don't forget any of it, but I want to. But 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 um, here's the piece I wanted to mention about, you know, and and this goes to. Uh, this goes to sort of Biden reading from index cards, being a little bit late, finally addressing things, uh, and, you know, Mike brought up the fed, um, and, and sort of people Biden has said in in this, um, in this, um, editorial in the wall street journal that, you know, I've put my people in place. I trust them to do what they're going to do. I'm not going to meddle in fed policy. These are highly competent people, right? Um, we should trust them and let them fix inflation. Basically, is what he's saying. Uh, one of the things he says in this op-ed. He also says, "Quote: The price at the pump is elevated in large part because Russian oil, gas, and refining capacity are off the market. We can't let up on our global effort to punish Mr. Putin for what he's done, and we must mitigate these efforts for American consumers." Okay, first of all, that's just not true, right? Anybody who understands how much oil we ever imported from Russia uh, understands that that's just that is that is just a. Uh, False, I would say false or misleading. It's a good attempted spin on his part. He also says, I've done what I can on my own to help working families during this challenging time and will help, and will keep acting to lower costs where I can, but now Congress needs to act too. So he's also shifting the blame uh, to someone else. He's trying to offload the burden of fixing these problems to Congress now, and everybody knows Congress ain't going to do shit, right? Right. So um, on Tuesday, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen told CNN's Wolf Blitzer that she was, quote, wrong in early 2021 about the path that inflation would take. Uh, She said there were unanticipated and large shocks to the economy that have raised the cost of food and energy and created supply chain bottlenecks that she didn't fully understand uh, the impact they were going to have at the time. So all of that goes to this overwhelming messaging challenge about inflation. And now I lay all that at your feet. So include that. Like, okay. When, hey, okay. Right? So first. <laughs> I just want to. go on. Well, if I had to and
1: do it in go. 30 seconds, I would just simply say this to the, to no, the listeners. No, you don't have to. Take your time. No, but the listeners that you mentioned who were saying, if they just understand, let's make it clear. Yeah. This is politics, not an academic exercise. Right. So right. those are two completely different things. It's this is politics. It's about winning. It's not about education. It would be nice if it was, but it's not. When we talk about inflation, let's not forget we were seeing those headlines back in December of 2021. So it's not it, it was way before the war in Ukraine. So any attempt to push that off doesn't work. Plus, unfortunately, because of our own internal um, crises in this country. Ukraine is now off the front page of the news. So that line is not so easy for the president to draw because we're not seeing those images. So th- blaming Ukraine is not something that's going to continue to resonate with or resonate rather with voters. The other thing is, is when we talk about those spending bills, 20, 2020 or 2021, guess what, the biggest messenger the Republicans have saying like too much spending is Joe Manchin. Remember, he did not go into build back better and want to spend more money because he said inflation is coming. And as far as the president giving this responsibility off to the House, it's basically abdicating your ability to do anything. And let's face it, when President Biden was elected, there were two major things. One, get rid of the lunatic that's currently in the White House, which is why people supported him. That was one. The other was we need competency back in the White House. And we are not seeing that. And it'd be one thing to say, yeah, it's true. We cannot control, the president cannot control inflation. That is, that is true. Mike is right. It falls on the Fed. But what happens when the Fed takes action? The only action they really can—they raise interest rates. Uh, excuse me. When the Fed acts, they raise interest rates. As a result, guess what? The price of homes go up. The amount of the, your credit card—that you pay an in interest on your credit card—goes up. Everything costs more if you are in paying off debt. So, the, and as we know, <laughs>
0: America is a debt-saddled country. You at, got from it, top to bottom.
1: So that's going to pose its. Own set of problems for this administration and for the Democrats come this fall. Because it's what they have to do, but it's not going to be, oh, we're fighting inflation, we raise interest rates, so your life is all great again. That's just not going to be the case. But the overall message, I think, of competency goes back a little bit now, because we saw in the 2021 elections, independents and suburban women or independent suburban women depending on how you want to look at it but mo- I would I would separate the two actually because a lot of independent men we saw as well really said Biden you're you're not cutting it for us and that's why we saw places like New Jersey have a close contest which it never should have been that's why we saw places in in Long Island that had been big Biden um voters flip to Republican county executives. It's why Virginia was very competitive and went into Republican control. Now, you could say history and that there's a lot of other things when it comes to Virginia, and I'll give you that. But what we saw was a lack of voter intensity, especially among African Americans, and a lack of confidence in the Biden administration. And that is, again, I, we keep going to that all of us at the Lincoln Project said, we need competence back in the White House. We showed the incompetency of of the former guy. Biden came in and it's, unfortunately, the timing, and we can blame a lot of other things, but it does not show leadership. And that's what's hurting him in the image capacity. So I'm not sure... Um, where there's so much room to change. I agree, you know, a week in politics is the equivalent of a year, but the Democrats are not changing or adapting to their situation. They keep playing off of the 2020 playbook and that's a big mistake.
0: Okay. So let's, let's bring this home then, Mike, in a, in a world, in a world (laughs) where, (laughs) (laughs) where, Democrats actually take direction as a party and can act more cohesively, like the Republican Party does, which we know are massive assumptions because they don't um, paint a picture where, given the given the two wild card uh, cultural phenomenon right, t- phenomena that we now have, right, that they now have an opportunity to uh, to parlay into electoral success. If you could direct the Democratic Party, whether it's whether it's DCCC leadership or the White House, what do they need to do in order to actually have a really strong chance at performing well in the midterms? Not that they're going to do it, right? But let's play fantasy, fantasy politics here for a minute, just in case, you know, any... Uh, Strategic advisors are listening. So
2: what you have to do uh, is very clear in my mind, and that is you have to immediately drop trying to command the national narrative. Um, As I've said over and over again, um, midterm elections, especially all elections, but midterm elections are more about uh, a referendum on the direction of where uh, the country is is going, and people vote against things, they don't vote for things, at least the swingable voters that are out there and that exist. It's why you are starting to see Schumer and Biden use the language MAGA Republicans. They're not just saying Republicans, they're saying MAGA Republicans, because Trump numbers are starting to tank considerably, and he's a huge drain on independents. This is important. It's important for another reason because we haven't brought this up yet, too, but the January 6th hearings are coming up. Now, they're not going to be aired on Fox News, (laughs) and there's not going to be a whole lot of them, but the demographic that we're talking about, okay, this 9% of the electorate, that is Going to be again losing sleep at night about whether or not I can afford to take the kids to, uh, you know, to, to summer camp or if I can even afford summer camp this year or whether I'm going to lose the right, my rights to choose or am I afraid of dropping my kids off at summer camp because they might be shot? Is also going to have this extremist element injected into the political discourse going into the summer. I still believe, as I was saying months ago, this is going to be an extremely important dynamic. This refrigerator hum is going to start getting you know, louder, right? And so it, wh- what you need to do is focus on Republican extremism. You have to get off of inflation. You have to get off of the economy beyond a very cursory here's what we're doing to fix it oh by the way have you seen the insurrectionists trying to take away your right to choose and also giving people with mental illnesses a, a ar-15 rifles uh, to to you know be be armed for whatever the next killings are going to be that has to be your message you cannot worry about whether or not that polls well with all demographics. You have to get those Republican suburban women back first and foremost, and then you have to also inspire your base to turn out. And the biggest problem Biden has always had has is, is not been just losing those Republican Lincoln Project Republicans and Republican women in the suburbs, especially in the Virginians of the world. That is true. That is a problem but his bigger problem is there is softness in his base his base is not consolidated he's never had democrats excited about him and you cannot win without a base so he's got to do both he's got to consolidate his base get them inspired to turn out in the 2018 in the 2022 cycle and he's got to bring republican women over the good news is the good news is the issues matrix that's developing insurrection Roe Wade, guns, all work to do both of those things. They can consolidate all of those things. The bad news is, uh, especially when you're relying on an 18 to 25-year-old demographic that doesn't normally work out well. Now, having said that, 2018, it worked out extraordinarily well. And we had had higher turnout, 18 to 25-year-olds, and we saw a defection of these college-educated Republican women. The difference, though, is you had Trump in the White House. It was a lot easier to run against something, as I said earlier. It's going to be harder to run against a hypothetical of saying the insurrectionists are going to be in charge of Congress if you allow these people to take over and if you give them the majority. That's your messaging. That's your messaging, right? You're running against the hypothetical of how bad it's going to be as opposed to how concerned you are about things the way they are right now. That's not great ground, okay? Is it possible? it is possible okay democrats you know have done that before in the 90s that was that was done it has been done before and there's a lot of ample good political fodder and material to make that case but i would much rather be arguing about the world as it is as opposed to the world as it could be as a boogeyman and that's where again Republicans do have an advantage. But to to answer the question, there's that Mike Madrid windup. The answer really quickly here is, quit trying to drive the national narrative, quit and quit talking on ground you cannot win on. Start talking about on on, on fight the battle on the battlefield that you choose, especially when it's breaking in your direction. That's where you stand the best chance. And that's what they're going to need to do immediately.
1: I do want to just add one thing to what Mike said. And that's you concur. I I agree with most of it. But I would say in addition to is that it's more than just those Republicans at nine percent. It's more than suburban women this time. There's a lot of independence that the Democrats have lost. They have more than that ground to get back than just the What we saw in 2020. There's a lot more uh, There's a lot more at stake than there was in 2020, and that's going to be hard to get those independents back. The other thing um, I agree about trying to not have the national conversation, but. You can't use Donald Trump as the boogeyman, but there are certain things you can do, like a crazy woman who believes in Jewish space lasers will be put back on the education committee if Republicans win. That's a very clear thing That's she was on the edu- education committee. Democrats basically took her off her committee and Republicans are willing to put her back. That is not the type of government we want for our children. Just taking what we currently have and creating kind of a new bad guy,
0: and she might even try to keep peach tree dishes out of our schools. So.
1: I mean, yeah, I mean, right? The calmest, the, the, the <laughs> nicest thing. That one Sorry, is that she actually believes in Jewish space
2: <laughs> Peach tree dishes. Peach <laughs> tree. Anyway, can I throw in one, one, one weird little number thing ahead. real yeah, quickly related to this? I know everybody is celebrating the political death of Madison Cawthorn, but if if he had won that primary, um. He would have lost that race in the general election. The Democrats would have picked that up. That's very clear from the outcome of this primary. And he would have been... Yeah, that's why they squashed him. That's why Republicans squashed him. Yeah, the Republicans had to get rid of him quickly. Everyone's kind of rejoicing that he's gone in the primary. If he had won just a few hundred more votes, the Democrats would have picked up that seat at least for two years, just temporarily. It's still a Republican seat. But there would have been enough Republican directions to give that seat to the Democrats. And it would have given the Democrats a poster child of this crazy extremism, uh, uh, another one, right? Another example of this craziness that would be taking over the Republican Party. It is why the Republicans had to had to politically put you know the nail in his coffin. So I, I know there's a lot of re- rejoicing, and I guess there there should be in the big picture. But the way us, us weird political people think is it, th- that really could have uh, done gone a long way for the Democrats um if Cawthorn had gotten through that primary
0: that's a
1: good point that's, a great point. that's a really good that's point. an excellent yeah.
0: point uh we i mean it's it, it's funny because we you know when we editorialize about it yeah it sounds great but if you know if we're putting practitioner hats on like <laughs> it's a completely it's a completely different calculation okay let's move to Top Gun. over the weekend, Top Gun Maverick set the box office record for a Memorial Day weekend opening bringing in over 160 million dollars. I'm actually really excited to talk about this. This is this is fascinating to me. Uh, so the film was made with, at least on the surface, an unlikely partner, which is the Defense Department, United States Defense Department. So DoD frequently collaborates with Hollywood, uh, including lending out some very expensive military equipment. That relationship dates back nearly a century uh, when DoD collaborated on the 1927 Oscar winner Wings. The Pentagon has collaborated on movies including Black Hawk Down, Armageddon, Pearl Harbor, uh, the Michael Bay Transformers franchise, and Marvel movies like Iron Man and the first Captain America film. They've also collaborated on TV cooking shows, Pitch Perfect 3, and Don't Look Up. Back when the first Top Gun film came out in 1986, uh, the producers paid $1.8 million for use of Miramar Naval Air Station. Use of Miramar Naval Air Station. And four aircraft carriers and about two dozen F-14 Tomcats, F-5 Tigers, and A-4 Skyhawks, some of those flown by real-life Top Gun pilots, uh, according to the Washington Post. Um... I mean, without, a, without the steep discount that they got from DoD, it's not likely that Top Gun would ever have been made, because a single F-14 Tomcat would have cost them like $38 million, and the total production budget was $15 million. But following the release of the film in May 1986, applications to become naval aviators reportedly jumped by 500%. And Time Magazine reported that the Navy even set up recruiting stands outside movie theaters where the film was playing. In 2019, the Air Force launched a recruitment campaign targeted at women that tied into the release of the Marvel film Captain Marvel, starring Brie Larson, who was an Air Force pilot turned superhero. We talked about this in our editorial meeting this week, and I was was surprised to hear about the extent of the collaboration between the Pentagon and Hollywood. Uh, I didn't really Know that was a thing, at least not not that extensively. Uh so first of all, I'm curious about how you guys think about the collaboration, but I want to then dig into um this. I mean, some people are calling it propaganda uh because the DOD was so heavily involved. Um, but first of all, did you know this was a thing that has happened for a very long time? This like this very Happy relationship between the DOD and Hollywood. Susan? I I knew
1: there was one. I didn't realize it went back to 1927, I believe I read, was the first collaboration. But um I, w- I was very aware of it. It could be because I was doing politics in the, you know, late 80s, early 90s in California and was very aware of the industry and their relationship uh with politics. But it it doesn't come surprising. And if I go back and think about someone who saw the original Top Gun. Because I'm old enough to do that. And still I mean, everybody's
0: seen the original Top but, Gun. I've, I right, love let me the me original say, Top Gun.
1: I saw the original Top Gun in the theaters. Oh, okay. Okay, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you can rent the video. Write, you don't I even was three. Do that. Yes, okay, so there <laughs> you have it. And I still have the a- Aviator sunglasses, for the record. I've bought several since, but I still have my originals from that those wow. Top Gun days. And that was a big leap and deal. So besides the relationship with Hollywood in the fashion industry, Hollywood yeah. in the military, it is something that has existed. It doesn't surprise me. Um, unfortunately, it doesn't surprise me that now there's a new twist to it. Instead of mm. saying kind of back then there was a positive, yes, look, we're encouraging people. You, they had sign-up centers and outside of movie theaters to, to enlist in this armed services. Now that would be seen as a horrible thing to do. Um, and, and the pushback on it is, is significant. I think that's unfortunate, but I also have no problem with it.
0: Yeah. So Mike, you are who I really wanted to talk to about this. <laughs> well,
1: thank this, you very because... much, Ron. I appreciate it. No, 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 no. That. no. I mean like. I appreciate th- I'll just go now.
2: <laughs> <laughs> what
0: I mean is when I read this, I was like holy shit, I got to talk to Mike about propaganda and the military and nationalism and wow, like the box that this opens up. Because one of the concessions when you partner with the DoD is that they get to make changes to the script. And uh, not to spoil the 35-year-old movie that we've just been talking about, Susan, but DoD rewrote the scene from the original Top Gun when Maverick's buddy Goose dies in order to remove a mid-air collision. This is in the current one. They rewrote it uh, because they said too many pilots were crashing. Uh, The the Guardian reported that the Pentagon uh, removed a Japanese character's reference to his grandfather surviving Hiroshima in the 2014 version of Godzilla. Uh, The Guardian Guardian also reported that the um, production assistance agreement between DoD and Paramount included an agreement to weave in key talking points in this current... Uh, Version of of Top Gun Maverick. So, Mike, I am curious how you're thinking about this editorial license that the government has been granted, that the military has been granted uh, in exchange for you know, as part of this partnership. But also, what it says about American culture, about where we are now versus, as Susan said, where we were then when there were recruiting stations set up outside movie theaters and this was, everybody was okay with it. there was a completely different sense of, of, of American uh, nationalism of, of military strength of duty of, you know, those, the culture has changed dramatically since then. And I wonder how you read this, um, this event going back to the, you know, the original days of, of Top Gun, just, uh, take it away. I'm curious what you think about the culture change.
2: Well, the most important part of the story is the fact that uh, Tom Cruise and I are the same age and we
0: are
2: exactly the same as we did and we're both operating in the <laughs> performance. So let's start with that. Uh, um,
0: can confirm having just come back from a war yeah, You, have, you, you know.
2: have to remember, I mean, the, the time as is, is a Gen Xer here and and I'm I'm not gonna, you know, speak for Susan, but I'll speak a little bit for her. We grew up at a time, you know, when the movies we watched were like Red Dawn, right, and and Rocky beating up Yvonne <laughs> Drago in the mm. ring, right. Like th- this was normal for us. This was part of how we were we were politicized, and it was, it was propaganda, and it wasn't subtle. The more direct it was, the <laughs> more we ate it up, right? The red threat, and it was it was a, it was a sign of the oh. times of, of the cold war. It just, it really was, um, because of the fears that we all had every day of, you know, potentially being, uh, you know, annihilated, um, by a nuclear bomb, by, by the the Russians. And, and, and so that fear was something that Hollywood spoke to. There's no question. This is jingoism. There's no question. This is propaganda. There's no question. This is part of what militaries do, um, and so it, it, from that respect, I think it makes a, a whole heck of a lot of sense. I, and again, I'm fully acknowledged because I you know, grew up at a different time. I don't have a problem with it either. In fact, in many ways, I think it's kind of smart money, right? If you need to build I up, yeah, I know, I'm sure we're going to get a lot of audience reaction from that one because of the, oh, the, yeah. the time and yeah. the culture may have changed and be different. But it, if you're not paying attention to what... A, other regimes in this world are doing literally at this moment, I'm sorry, military might and military power matters when you, and maybe this is just because we came out of a, of a war zone. (laughs) This stuff matters. Okay. This stuff matters. And you have to be able to, um, talk about your country and its strength in a way that is not just an academic exercise, it's literally about posturing in the information age. Top Gun when it came out, Hollywood was the way these this information was disseminated. It wasn't just a blockbuster generational movie in its time. It commanded a a global audience. It was telling the whole world this is who the United States of America is. If you if you want to say that's horrible and we're imperialist and we're jingoist and we're whatever, yeah, yeah, you're right. You're right. And if you don't think that that is part of what countries do to position geopolitically, I, I, I don't know what to tell you, but but you're going to need to sit down because we're going to have to have a long talk. And this is going to be really unsettling on the way the world actually works because that is the way the world actually works. And it is an important part yeah, of what we are. And I'm not saying Hollywood has an obligation to do that, but what I am saying is that if the United States military, sees advantage because it has hundreds of millions of dollars of assets that you can't build or fake for a set and is willing to lease that out for the right imagery. I don't have a problem with that. I don't have a problem with that. I mean I wish they, I wish they would have extracted a little bit more from my taxpayer dollars i'm with you there <laughs> that's the, the problem i have is that you only paid a million bucks made it like, paid a little bit gosh, more you know let's, all, let's start a GoFundMe account let's have a politicology you know plus party on some aircraft carrier somewhere with everybody <laughs> kicking in a couple of bucks because I, I if you can if you're gonna make 160 million dollars on the first weekend with this movie you know charge a little bit more that's the problem that's the only problem i have with this
0: the other thing that this made me think of, and, and a, where I, what I wanted to get at, is it reminded me of of uh, you know Molly's now you know I don't know ten times reprised pincer of isolationism, which I mm-hmm. mentioned multiple times, which is this, this is this you know this um, uh, this growing, increasing, advancing trend on both uh, both far ends of. I'm using this one dimensional political spectrum as if it's actually useful, but the far right and the far left increasingly encroaching into the middle, right of not wanting to be engaged in the rest of the world and not being interested in american interventionism or even american anything that smacks of american military strength or might or 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 demonstrating that on the global stage and that to me seems like the backdrop for this this the the cultural backdrop for what the pentagon is now they obviously recognize this right uh trying perhaps to correct by by rebuilding or 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 restoring this sense that America can be a good uh, good actor on the world stage and trying to revive a a pride in 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 that military strength in in some way so that's what this made me think of so what do you think about that?
2: Uh, yeah look I think I uh, I don't believe and look I, I I believe that America is a is a good profoundly good country. I think we are a good people. I think we have amongst perhaps the most aspirational of, of, of founding principles and ideas. I think we are also a country made up of human beings, which makes us fallible, <laughs> like any human institution. But to focus only on what is wrong is is just as dangerous as focusing is as being blind to what is wrong with you right it's why when i see kind of the trumpet mount rushmore and the fireworks and the screaming eagles coming down and the the humongous waving flags and it's just it's nothing but this syrupy jingoistic crap with nothing underneath it it's like Eating so much icing off of the cake that you get sick and throw up before you actually get down to the actual cake, right? That, that is that is dangerous. America, right or wrong, you know, if you don't, you know, love it or leave it, that that kind of mentality is what you know uh, uh, people who have a, a, a addictions use to deny what is wrong with them. Right? There's no perfect nation, but I think that if you look at our founding. And if you look at the documents that which we say we of who we say we are we are still an inspiration to the world i wish we were more so to ourselves and i say that from that conversation too we had on a train ride from lviv to kyiv through the bloodlands where 14 million people were killed between you know germany and 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 russia In a 12, 14-year period, millions of people are slaughtered, and Molly McHugh says to us, words I will never forget, the Ukrainian people believe that we are who we say we are. Our mythology is important. We have a unique place in the world as Americans. And I think that the more that we live up to that, the more we inspire the people of the world, especially people that we met in Ukraine who are willing to die for what we have. And they're not only saying that literally over a cup of coffee in a cafe in the middle of air raid sirens going off, they're talking about their family members who are dying in the Donbass, you know, a couple hundred kilometers away. So so we are important The United States of America is important to the world, to world history, but we are also very deeply flawed, and one of our biggest problems is our unwillingness to talk about that, to talk about our problems and talk about our our sins and our misgivings in order to make us a more perfect union. We're not the perfect union. We're trying to become a more perfect union. And that is always the struggle of America, is to continually get better and improve. And you can't do that when you reject criticism. And so I don't think there's anything wrong. In fact, I think it's honorable to be talking about it, even in sometimes jingoistic syrupy, sweet ways, the mythology of America, because myth is very important. And if that happens with cool fighter plane scenes and these big ships and stuff. I really don't have a problem with that because we have done a lot of of really bad things, but I really believe we have done far, far, far more good things as a country, even with those weapons of war. I believe that to my core.
0: Now that we are up to speed on some of the biggest stories this week. Let's talk about what you're watching under the radar, Susan. What do you got?
1: So, Mike, I apologize for kind of going into your turf here, but I am watching <laughs> the primaries in California primaries. Yeah. <laughs> and uh which are on June 7th. And specifically one race I think to watch is Young Kim in Orange County. And you know, when she was elected in 2020, she was like The face of a new Republican Party. It it was great 58-year-old woman, great story. Her district has been redrawn drawn that only now includes 20% of her current district. So 80% of the people there don't know her. And because of the way California primaries work, it's you know, it Democrat, Republican, everyone runs, and then it's the top two winners. She's getting outflanked on her right by a Trump extremist candidate. So, uh, and Republicans—I uh, est- don't even know what the heck "establishment" and ca- "Republican" means anymore. But the the P- Kevin uh, McCarthy folks—they're um, actually trying to build in support for her, which is running contrary to where the party um, in California or, and most other states are in that extreme Trumpism. So, I'm very, I'm very curious to see how she fares. I hope she ends up in the top two for no other reason than I would hate to see, you know, Trump take one more person down.
0: Mike, what do you got?
2: Well, in the same neck of the woods, I'm going to talk a little bit about California politics too. The city of Anaheim um, is actually about to, I think, explode volcanically (laughs) with a political uh, scandal that I think will be one of the biggest local government scandals in in decades uh, across the country. Um, It appears that a handful of political consultants and lawyers have been essentially running, um, in their words, a cabal or a, quote, family that was making decisions on everything from uh, where the Angels and Angels stadium deal will be um, sent to next. Uh, A lot of their funding, if not most of their funding, um, was done at the behest or direct involvement of Disney. Uh, most people don't realize that Anaheim is essentially a Disney town. Disneyland has some extraordinary, extraordinary benefits from being in that city. Um, and for for many, many years, the, the city has been essentially run by a handful of political consultants. The FBI uh, has been in Anaheim for the past three years uh, with wiretaps. And apparently, the network of what I think we're about to find out, I think, is going to be pretty extraordinary. But it's not just that. There's this huge local government scandal. It's going to be the players that are involved. It's ma- uh, Major League Baseball. It will be uh, Anaheim Ducks. It will be Disneyland. Um, all of the ma- these main players who have these benefits from the city, I think, are going to come under scrutiny. So you're going to be hearing a lot about the city of Anaheim. It's going to have major impacts on whether or not the Angels stay there what the deal is with Disneyland, which of course is a favorite of Fox News right now for other reasons. Um, and uh, just buckle, buckle up because I think it's going to be a really um, unfortunate but interesting political tale of, of corruption and malfeasance. Wow.
0: That sounds like it's just going to give rocket fuel to the existing yep. Disney yep. narrative. Uh, okay, so I'm going to take us over to Michigan. Um, there was a story that came out in uh, Politico uh, Wednesday this week about the GOP strategy for contesting elections there in Michigan. This is not just in Michigan, but they actually had recordings of people talking in Michigan. So that's why they focused there, but this is probably happening everywhere, right? The, um, the plan is to install party trained volunteers as poll workers and connect them with party attorneys to challenge voters at democratic majority polling places. This is not, this is not entirely new like we've talked about this before on the podcast that this has been the strategy but the thing that was new and interesting here to me was a they had like recordings tapes of people talking about this and they were using terms like you know we're gonna have an army right of of these people now for listeners who aren't really familiar with the sort of the blocking and tackling of of turnout operations and edo election day operations um it is it is it is common practice for both parties to take poll watchers to the polls right uh it's very very common and even poll watchers to the counting of ballots and to object to you know any uh when you're doing you know um um hand counts to object, to object to ballots where signatures don't match or where there's a feasible reason why the ballot might be thrown out this is both parties do this it's part of the process what the republican party is doing just to just to remind everyone is to take um the party trained volunteers who would otherwise potentially be poll watchers and make them poll workers, which is part of the official election administration apparatus. And then what really stood out to me was that they have a really, uh, sophisticated and efficient operation, uh, powered by Zendesk, by the way, to connect these people in real time to a, uh, a, a, you know, a, a pool of party attorneys who can take action in real time uh, to challenge voters at not at, at, at polling places that are Democratic majority. So this is a very sophisticated operation. Um, and, and they're recruiting people to become poll workers um, specifically because of that increased power that they have compared to poll challengers or poll watchers. So in the recordings of meetings between RNC officials and activists, the the, the RNC's election integrity director for Michigan um, vowed to create an army backing the, the poll workers that they're scrutinizing. Uh, and last, uh, last October at an RNC meeting, um, officials there said they were recruiting lawyers to build relationships with judges and law enforcement officials so that they can be more effective at challenging election results in November. Um, and then in May 2022, um, right now, just now, in a training session, they said they had reached their goal of 5,600 people signing up to become poll workers after RNC recruitment. That's a large number. That's a lot of people. 5,600 people have become poll workers. And uh, yeah, so this is just, uh, the reason I'm bringing it up is obviously something I'm watching very closely, but it takes us from the land of Hey, this is a thing that we know they're planning on doing, that they're talking about doing, that it's a strategy. And wow, look at the execution because it's actually really good. Like it's really, it's really good execution. So uh, there you go. Uh, all right, gang. Before we flip over to Politicalology Plus, where we're going to follow up on our conversation last week about potential Democratic candidates for twenty twenty four. That was the silent search to replace Biden. At, we're going to look at what the Republican ticket might look like. And uh, where can everybody find you on
2: the internet? Susan?
1: On Twitter at Del Percio s.
2: And Mike? On Twitter at Madrid underscore Mike. And
0: I'm on Twitter at Ron Steslow. Thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening today. You can support the show by joining the growing, thriving community of Politicology Plus members and gain access to hours of special content designed to help you think like a political strategist and look further down the road than everyone else and understand the forces and figures shaping the fight for democracy. You can unlock this premium content at politicology.com slash plus. And if you have any questions about anything we've talked about, you can reach us as always at podcast at politicology.com.